I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about whatever I want. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend one of the most brilliant and transformative books I've ever read, and I talk about the turn in Paul's argument in Romans 3. So this is a little bit unusual. I'm recording this episode on a Friday, Friday evening, um, looking out on an absolutely beautiful day, beautiful late summer day, closing days of August. The school year beginning is just right around the corner. And uh, this whole week has just been busy preparing for uh, classes, getting everything sorted out, seeing colleagues and reconnecting with with, uh, with folks, which has been uh, fantastic. But uh, this weekend, I'm, I'm going to be heading to Southern California to hang out with um, the folks at Vox Church and looking forward to having an absolute blast. Tim Stafford was there a couple weeks ago and s- spent the weekend with them and said he just it was awesome. Just a lot of people hanging out, having uh, loads of discussions, good food, good times, good laughs. So I'm looking forward to uh, hanging out with all of them. And I get back late Monday night. So um, I'm having to record things for this episode a little bit in advance. And I saw on Twitter recently, someone just made the comment, you know, nobody preaches on Philemon anymore. Or like, how rare is it that anybody talks about Philemon? And I took that thought with me on a walk a couple of mornings. I was like, doggone it. Um, Philemon is just the best. I love that little letter that Paul writes uh, to his friend. And so um, in thinking about some of the, in thinking about what I would talk about with the Vox folks, I thought, we got to do Philemon. So I'm looking forward to talking about Philemon uh, on Sunday. Loads of uh, wonderful dynamics in that little letter of Paul. Interestingly, in his uh, massive, massive work, uh, Tom Wright uh, in Paul and the Faithfulness of God starts his entire discussion of Paul with like a hundred pages on Philemon, comparing it to a letter that was written uh, from Pliny to uh, another nobleman named Sabinianus. And um, by the way, uh, if you want Philemon as a document and uh, Pliny's letter to Sabinianus as a document, you're welcome to email me. I can send those to you. It's a really fun exercise to actually read they're both about the same length. And it's interesting to read them together and to track through the logic that each one unfolds as, as to why um, Pliny and Paul make appeals to someone to deal uh, mercifully with a slave. And it's just fascinating um, because you sort of see uh, the Greco-Roman honor code uh, operating in a very interesting way, set next to uh, how Paul reasons with Philemon with regard to Onesimus, um, according to a completely different logic, um, which on the surface, you read both letters, they seem very similar, um, but on repeated readings, and once you get into sort of the deep logic of Philemon that Paul unfolds, you, you, you should end up uh, seeing that the gospel logic is just a profoundly different reality um, than is operative in Pliny's letter. Anyway, we're not going to get into Pliny uh, this weekend. There's enough to talk about just in Philemon. Um, when it comes to the Cubs, this is this has been a great couple days because uh, astoundingly, the Cubs have won two in a row. It's a huge uh, win streak that's up and running for the Cubs. I've been able to have my uh, w flag flying for several days for like three days because today's an off day for them so uh that they, they haven't lost today and um yeah the season's lost uh hopefully this is a low point before some kind of glorious rebuilding um we'll see on that note i got the most hilarious uh comment from Hannah 
on my blog. And this just cracked me up. I took a screenshot of it and sent it to Sarah because and we had a good laugh. This is just absolutely brilliant. So and I just thought I've got to read this. And I'll just read it in full. It says, I heard you first on Voxology. That's the podcast with uh, Mike Erie and Tim Stafford. Great, great people. Excellent blo- uh, uh, podcast. And in the number of lapses in judgment. And um, uh, they they invited me on to have some discussions with them. So I heard you first on Voxology and was curious about this podcast, Faith Improvised. I like how your podcast is less of a performance and more like a chat you might have with a friend. Cool. That's good. Uh, lastly, I have found that this is brilliant. Lastly, I have found that your podcast is great to listen to as I fall asleep because your voice is very calming. Also, I do not follow sports. So if I have a hard time falling asleep, I turn on your podcast and I'm asleep by the time you're finishing up the sports section. That is awesome. That is so great. Uh, I am so pleased to provide a range of services for the general public. And if that includes, um, you know, overcoming sleeplessness, I'm very happy to, to serve that purpose. So Hannah, I hope uh, at various times when my, my voice slows down, gets very low and soothing that, um, it does the job. Uh, and I, I must say that uh, generations of students who have taken my classes know exactly what you mean. That's really great. I Thanks for that, Hannah. That was a good laugh. And um, I don't take myself too seriously. That kind of stuff just cracks me up. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to say is uh, just in getting things started here is just this. I have since I began this podcast, I've heard from a number of pastors and I'm so very glad, um, that anybody that is serving the church finds this podcast helpful. That's really gratifying to hear. Um, and I also know that it's just a part of my job as an academic person that studies the texts of the new Testament. Um, you know, through the lens of, of uh, critical thinking, critical observation of like what's actually there, um, as part of my job as, a, as an academic, but also as a Christian academic, an academic person that confesses to be Christian and cares about the life of the church, I know it's the case that I often make critical comments. I hope that, I, that I'm always exercising a critical mind and critical thinking and I try with all that I have to resist having a critical spirit of condemnation towards any anybody that you know serves the church. And I don't mean to um, um, denounce churches or certainly avoid any kind of note of condescension. I just want to think critically about what it means to be Christian in this world. Um, but anyway, I know I've I make critical comments about all of that, but just to say. I have great sympathy for pastors um, who are just doing the work. And it is really tough to be a pastor. It's really tough to serve the church. Um, and to my mind, the real target of a lot of, of what I try to analyze is cultural dynamics that, that force us as churches into ways of, of community life um, that are destructive and corrupted. And so I try to observe that whole phenomenon, that whole reality, so that I can see it for myself and live in ways that are counter to all of that. But all of those larger cultural dynamics, uh, pastors are also subject to them. And they're subject to loads of uh, pressures and fearful dynamics. Um, All the dynamics of celebrity and consumerism go to work on church leaders in ways that um, are really difficult to deal with and in ways that people in churches who are not in sort of professional ministry, um, they don't understand all of that. And, and it's impossible to see it unless you're in that position. So I'm saying that, I'm saying all of that to say that if you are a church-going person, just encourage your pastor Um send them a note, send them a text, just go up to them after 
um, your gathering time on a Sunday and just say, hey, I really appreciate you. Uh, thanks for this. I know this is just a lot of work and I'm thinking about you this week and I'm just really grateful for you. Pastors have a, have a rough go and um, words of encouragement are really rare. Pastors hear from people when they're disgruntled. Pastors hear from people when, when people have uh, criticisms to bring to bear um, because we're all sort of trained in consumer practices of evaluating this product over against that product. And when we just get so tired of our, you know, church uh, communities, we end up letting our pastor have it and taking off. And I, I partly hesitate to say that because I know that a lot of folks are in, uh, in sort of um, toxic church situations and there's, there are endless varieties of church situations that many people are in. So uh, if this doesn't land with you, if you're in a church setting where you'd rather not, I'm not laying any guilt on you. Um, but uh, pastors that listen to this, uh, I appreciate you. I recognize the difficult situation that you are in um, and the pressures that you face and all those dynamics that tear at family life. It's, it's tough. So give a word of encouragement to somebody in ministry. It, it, um, you know, it'll, it'll mean a lot. I'll just say that. I want to tell you about a book. It's by Willie James Jennings, and it's called The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, and it's published by Yale University Press. This book is very simply one of the most brilliant and breathtaking books I have ever read. It has profoundly reshaped how I think about a number of large-scale social, historical, and cultural realities, and it's reconfigured my theological orientation, not only when it comes to thinking about race, but also a number of biblical texts, and also about how whiteness affects biblical interpretation in general. Willie Jennings is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale Divinity School, and has been a powerfully illuminating, discerning, and hopeful voice in Christian theology in this generation. This book takes up the question of how it can possibly be that Christianity, this movement oriented around love of neighbor, has failed to be a force in healing social divisions. In fact, the reverse is true. Christianity, certainly in an American context, has been closely associated with racial segregation and oppression. How in the world can this be? As I've noted in the past, doing the deep historical dive reveals so much. And that's precisely what Jennings does in this book. He begins his account in the late medieval period, in the mid to late 1400s, when European powers began to colonize other parts of the world. They were driven by competition with one another for glory, power, and wealth. And these European powers were, of course, Christian. And this is the heart of the story that Jennings tells. The project of spreading Christianity to other parts of the world was enveloped within a larger project of arriving to far-off lands and dominating the indigenous people who lived there, and his relationship with the land told them who they were. Europeans plundered the wealth of African and South American tribes and nations, enslaved, tortured, and murdered countless people, and spread disease and famine. And all the while, they spread the gospel through missionaries and ministers who accompanied those who plundered and killed in the name of Christian European empires. Part of the European encounter with other tribes and nations in Asia, Africa, and South America was an analysis of how Europeans could evaluate themselves with reference to those who were unlike them. Christian missionaries were shaped by their inherited cultures, so they, like the conquerors they accompanied, saw black and brown people as savages, pagans, people enslaved to varieties of demonically inspired religious practices and systems. Christian thought was thus affected by the European valuation of humans ranging from white to black, with all sorts of different colors, appearances, and combinations of people being given relative value in relation to European whiteness. The lens of whiteness was foisted upon the world at the beginning of the era of imperial expansion. 
And this way of seeing global humanity enveloped and thoroughly shaped the development of Christian theology ever since. Jennings tells this larger story in a form of theological writing that is difficult to describe, really. He narrates the stories of four individuals who are at the heart of the project of European colonization. And as he tells their stories and traces their experiences through their writings, the massive scale and the catastrophic horror of how European powers plundered humanity and creation come plainly into view. Jennings is just a beautiful writer with a theological vocabulary that invites readers to see things in a completely new way. I must say that I read this book very slowly over about four or five months, and I'm glad that I did. It's simply a masterpiece that brings together into a fuller picture the dehumanizing logics of capitalism, the invention of the notion of race, the desires of empire, and how all these and more distorted and corrupted the modern Christian imagination. As I said above, this book is just magisterial. It's brilliant and breathtaking in its scope and its insights. I simply don't think about so very many things in the same way since reading Jennings, and I'm grateful. The book is The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race by Willie James Jennings, and it's published by Yale University Press. Get it, as ever, from an independent bookstore. So I want to talk about Romans 3, 21 to 31. And it's here where things take a turn. From 118 to 320, things have been pretty dark. Uh, Paul has been talking about, um, in 118 to 32, the long descent into uh, idolatry and Gentile degradation. And keep in mind that he that, that passage is intentionally and intensely rhetorically shaped to be sort of as dark a version as possible of that narrative. And he does so to set up the judging group, the weak in Rome, and to kind of fire up their judgmental sentiments um, against the strong. And in 2.1, he turns on them and says that you all are part of that same history. You're, you're, you're sort of steeped in those same practices as a people. You belong to that group. Um, so you're just complete hypocrites, and you're condemning yourself if you are condemning people who are part of that group. And all the way up to uh, verse 20, uh, Paul has uh, basically condemned all of humanity under cosmic enslavement to the cosmic power of sin. Sin as this um, cosmic tyrant, uh, according to the title of one book on sin as a cosmic power. Sin is this cosmic tyrant and has enslaved all of humanity. Um, God's historic people, Israel, Jews, are under the cosmic power of sin, and all Gentiles, that is, all the nations, all of humanity. And that's part of Paul's rhetorical strategy to unite everybody in the Roman churches together under sin. They, they all together are wrapped up in adikia, that is, injustice or unrighteousness. Um, Israel has been unfaithful, so for Gentiles in Rome to join that group or to sort of imagine that taking on an identity attached to Israel somehow puts them, gives them a superior status is completely wrong. And uh, even Israel has been wrapped up in adikia as the list of quotations in 3, uh, 10 to 18 reveals. Um, Furthermore, all, all humanity have become liars. Not that they all lie, um, but all of humanity has sort of bought the lie that they're in the image of something other than the one true God. Humanity does not exhibit within creation the truth of God. And um, I mentioned before that uh, Paul sort of brings in this temple imagery that is according to God's creational design, and this is reflected in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and throughout Romans, actually throughout Romans, there's loads of temple imagery, um, sort of steeped in the imagery of worship, uh, because, um, again, I feel like I have to say this in a modern context where we imagine worship as something we do for 18 minutes on a Sunday morning. Um, worship in scripture is total life. It's all of life. And 
according to God's intentions from creation, uh, the whole of creation was to be God's dwelling place, his temple. And his righteous character, his faithful character, his character as true, uh, was to be exhibited within creation by humanity reflecting uh, God's truth. They were to be God's image and reflecting God's justice and God's faithfulness to creation. That's, that is how the whole temple structure was supposed to work, so that you would see humans conducting themselves in the whole of their lives and in community life and in bringing about the flourishing of creation. All of that was a holistic picture of worship, uh, so that throughout God's temple, that is creation, uh, image of God was being image of God, displaying God's character, exhibiting or performing the reality image of God in the holistic range of pursuits that humanity would undertake. Um, and unfortunately, tragically, temple space is polluted. Paul talks about in, in chapter one that humans have been given over to unclean practices. That's temple language. Um, anything unclean can't come near to God for worship. And so there's this breach or this distance between humanity and God. Uh, and the picture there is polluted temple space because humanity has become mired in adikia, um, that whole uh, dick language group in Greek. Uh, that gets at God's righteous character, humanity has become unrighteous. God's just character, humanity has become unjust. They are, humanity is not depicting within creation the one true God and the one true God's um, life. And that's the situation that needs to be set right. Uh, humanity is stands in need of being restored to being image of God within creation. So I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating that it's not merely the case that that uh, humanity has a sin problem, that each person has sinned and each person needs to be forgiven and granted like the righteousness of Christ or something like that. Righteousness of Christ, I don't think is an expression ever used in the New Testament, even though sort of it exists in some theological systems. Anyway, but that's beside the point. Uh, it's not merely the case that each human has sinned and needs to be forgiven. Uh, the situation is far more complex. Uh, temple space is polluted, image is uh, compromised, and that needs to be restored. Uh, temple space needs to be cleaned up, and humanity needs to be restored to being image of God within creation. So um, humanity needs to be uh, um, righteous because they're unrighteous. They need to be made just because they are unjust. That's the language of justification. They need to be made back into image. They need to have their humanity restored. And um, Israel, and really, really sort of uh, in terms of Israel's mission to the nations, uh, part of the problem is that Israel's been unfaithful. And so there needs to be faithfulness, um, because what God desired for Israel is to be a faithful nation in bringing the nations back to God and bringing humanity back to God for restoration. That project has failed, so there's a faithfulness that is needed. So God's character as righteous and as faithful needs to be seen within creation, and that is the solution that Jesus brings about, which is really interesting. So the problem is more complex, and so is the solution. And uh, in the argument of Romans, uh, because Paul wants to unite the competing factions in the Roman churches, the problem has affected all of the believers in Rome. That's why there's all these mentions of all throughout Romans uh, 118 all the way up to 511, um, because he's bringing them all together. The problem has affected everybody, and so has the solution. This is part of the good news. So it's not that everything leading up to 321 has been sort of like the bad news before the good news in a, in a gospel presentation. Uh, Paul's rhetorical aim is to unite everybody in the problem and to then unite everybody in the solution so that there is no group in the Roman churches that is an exception. No group in the Roman churches has any um, warrant to make a claim to superior status. They're all 
together. So just to walk through this text and sort of bring some things to light, this is um, regarded by many, especially uh, 3, 21 to 26, regarded by many interpreters as sort of the, the theological heart of Romans. In some ways, that's kind of true. Um, but I think that that is sort of, um, that notion is a reflection of uh, kind of, of a Reformed or Protestant or Lutheran, um, certainly an evangelical um, way of understanding Romans through the lens of like a gospel presentation, like this is the heart of it all. I'm not so sure that it is. It's, it's part of the core. Um, I mean, it's certainly the main turn, but I think what's what's maybe more important, certainly just as important, are all of the corollaries that Paul draws from it, all the implications that he draws from this reality. Because ultimately, Paul is wanting to solve the problem of the divisions in the Roman churches, and he brings to bear everything that he says here to solve that problem. He's not sort of giving the gospel. He's not sort of informing the Romans of what is the gospel. He's bringing them back to uh, fundamental realities in order to bring about church unity. So um, let's get to it. Verse 21, uh, Paul says that now uh, God's righteousness is manifested or it's been revealed apart from Torah, which is going to be in some ways, big news. That's that's kind of radical. That's a, this radical move that God has made in the gospel. Um, that God's right-making work, His transformative work, His His work to solve the problem, the complex problem, is actually not happening through Israel, and that was God's plan A. It was supposed to happen through Israel. That is God setting right what had gone wrong. Um, was going to happen through the nation of Israel as a national agent of the reclamation of humanity. But he says that it's actually happening apart from Torah, apart from the law. So a Jewish identity in the Roman churches is neither here nor there. It's, it's irrelevant with regard to what God is doing in the gospel. Um, rather than happening through Torah, verse 22, God's right-making work, and that's how I understand God's righteousness. It's not God's uh, God's character itself. Um, in some interpretations of Romans, uh, what is deficient about humanity is that we don't have righteousness in some kind of legal way. That is, in the heavenly books, we lack righteousness, and all we have is uh, you know sin or condemnation. And God's righteousness is the righteousness that is applied to people uh, who believe so that we have righteousness imputed to us, that is reckoned to our heavenly account. That is not what's happening here. Um, God's righteousness in this, in verses 21 and 22, is a reference to God's right-making work, his active work to set right what went wrong. A better, a better way of understanding uh, righteousness in this sense is God's work of rectification, uh, because to rectify something is to set it right. And God's right-making work is actually being revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And there are many translations that translate that expression, faith in Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, but it's better understood as the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That is, uh, a reference to the holistic work of Jesus and his faithful life. Um, and beyond that, uh, the reality that believers are actually wrapped up into the faithfulness of Christ. That, that's one of Paul's designations, one of his terms, to describe this cosmic space into which believers are absorbed. Uh, we have our, you know, to use Paul's language, we are baptized by the Spirit into Christ, into Christ's faithfulness. Um, so the faithfulness of Jesus is the means by which God is setting things right. His, his, his right-making work is being revealed, is being carried out through the faithfulness of Jesus. Again, Israel had been unfaithful and 
had failed to be the national agent of the restoration of humanity. But that is all happening through God drawing people into the faithfulness of Jesus. So, like I said, that's the faithfulness of Jesus is Paul's way of talking about this reality whereby God has opened up cosmic space within which Christians now exist. So all who are faithful, um, you know, all who believe, that's a weaker way of translating that, um, but all who are faithful or all who are of faith, all who trust, all who sort of commit themselves to God in Christ, are absorbed into that cosmic space where, the, where their humanity is being restored. And they exist there as people whose lives are being transformed into the community shape of Jesus himself. Um, we, are, we are in this process of image restoration within the faithfulness of Jesus. And um, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a hard reality to kind of get your head around. Um, but some of the things that Paul has to say in a bit clarify that to some extent. To understand Paul's theology, you really have to understand cosmic realms. That is, um, outside of Christ, uh, or I should say before believers were in Christ, they were in cosmically enslaved space. And to be in Christ is to be delivered out of that cosmically enslaved space into a liberated space. And another way of talking about that cosmic realm in, in which we live and move and have our being is to talk about the faithfulness of Jesus, to be absorbed into Jesus and Jesus's life and his whole dynamic of faithfulness to God. Paul gets at that in Galatians 2, and he says that I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Um, yet the rest of this thing that I have, this rest of my life, um, I go on living it by the faithfulness of Jesus. So Paul's own life is kind of wrapped up into the faithfulness of Jesus, which is not only an empowering reality, uh, it's just the entire resurrection-oriented, new creation-oriented reality that that um, Christian people inhabit. And being in that space, along with the rest of the people of God, um, that existence, that reality, is the revelation of God's right-making work. That's how and where, cosmically speaking, it takes place. And Paul goes on to say that there is no distinction. No group has a special claim to this in Rome by virtue of taking on a certain ethnic identity. It, it, it applies to everybody. There's no distinction between ethnicities, no distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. Um, all are wrapped up into it together. No one is better no one is worse, for all sinned. Everybody in Rome was affected by adikia. Everybody's bodies have become bodies dominated by sin. And um, they, they were all subject to the cosmic power of sin. And because of all that, they all lacked the glory of God. That's, it's not the translations just drive me nuts that say uh, they fall short of the glory of God um, because that sort of fires up in our imaginations this this like massively high standard, like a thousand holiness points that all of us kind of try to reach through our various efforts and we fail. We all kind of fall short of the glory of God. Oh, but Jesus did the thousand holiness uh, achievement thing and we have that achievement of Jesus kind of applied to our accounts. None of that is what's going on here. What Paul is talking about is the reality that everybody in Rome sinned. Everybody in Rome went through that, um, that process of kind of surrendering image of God, glory of God. They all failed to be true humans. They all were wrapped up in um, a humanity that was not being true image bearers. So again, all of the alls, are crucial to understand Paul's argument here. Uh, so they all sinned, they all lacked the glory of God, verse 24, and they are all united in justification as a gift. Um, 
And justification or you know being justified as a gift, as I said, is better understood as rectification or being righteous, being made righteous, being transformed into the righteousness of God. They were all set right. They're all brought out of Adikia into Dikaiosune, brought out of injustice into justice, brought out of unrighteousness into righteousness. And um, again, that has everything to do with being transferred into that cosmic space of Jesus himself. So justification does not have the notion in Paul of merely being sort of like declared righteous in some kind of heavenly courtroom. It has to do with transformation. It has to do, as we'll see in a minute, it has to do with liberation. So transformation into new humanity and liberation out of cosmic enslavement, um, which Paul talks about in the next expression. It happens through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And redemption language for Paul, he is drawing directly upon the, the bank of vocabulary drawn from the Exodus narrative. When God liberated Israel from enslavement uh, to Egypt, he redeemed them out of slavery. And so the notion there is deliverance, liberation. Um, it's just that in this instance, it's from the cosmic tyrant sin. So Jesus died, and he himself was delivered from the enslaved present evil age. When Jesus came, Jesus did not have a sort of a, a sinless existence. He didn't himself sin, the New Testament teaches, um, but he had a humanity that was dominated by the present evil age. He had a, um, Paul talks about how he had um, a body that was, he had a body of sin, a, a human body dominated by the cosmic power of sin. And, um, you know, Christian orthodoxy teaches that, and the New Testament teaches that even in that condition, he did not sin. Um, but he had that kind of body. And by his death, God brought about um, the destruction of the present evil age. That's sort of an ongoing destruction. And God brought about the new creation, the new world of resurrection existence. And everybody who is in Christ is baptized into the whole narrative that happened to Jesus. So Jesus was delivered out of <clears throat> that cosmically enslaved space because we are baptized into Jesus. We are delivered out of that cosmically enslaved space and brought into the newly liberated space where Christ himself exists. So we've been brought into liberation. That's the reality. Um, so being set right, being justified, means being transformed, and it means being liberated. It's not a sort of legal fiction that happens in the heavenlies. It's not just this kind of in the heavenly books, there's no longer a black mark. It's now white or something like that. We're now forgiven in heaven. It has to do with actual transformed existence now. Uh, in verse 25 is where things start to get just a little bit tricky. Um, and I say that because these are, Paul's expressions here are, are complex. And in the interpretive tradition, my goodness, this things are sort of all over the place, or this is one place where there's a lot of confusion at what Paul actually has to say. Because Paul says about, uh, about Jesus that God set him forth as a propitiation. I'm not crazy about that translation. Um, God, set, God set Jesus forth, or he publicly displayed him as a, the Greek term is hilasterion, which in uh, Septuagint texts, so the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was up and running around Paul's day, and Paul seems to almost entirely work from uh, Septuagint, from the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And he uses that term here. And it's better translated as a mercy seat. And what's interesting is when people do the very careful work in the background of that term, they come to see that the mercy seat is that area just above the Ark of the Covenant um, that a high priest would go into 
in biblical Israel, uh, Israel times and uh, would go in and would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed animal to sort of uh, cleanse that spot uh, to bring about uh, the, you know, sort of the cleansing of polluted temple space, or it was the cleansing of temple space so that God's presence could abide among humans. So um, what's interesting here is that, you know, a load of New Testament interpreters will say like, you know, Paul uses this term, but what, it's kind of weird because he really is intending, you know, the whole ceremony and he probably, he's he's really intending here, you know, the scapegoat. That is... Um, either the sacrifice or the animal that's like sent out of the camp that bears the sins of the people. Uh, which is whenever you get um, interpreters, Pauline interpreters saying something like, you know, Paul says this, but I think what it really means is this. That's maybe a sign that we're not tracking as well as we should be. Uh, because as a historical figure, I think it's safe to say that Paul knew his Bible a whole lot better than we knew Paul's Bible and a whole lot better than we even know Paul. And so if he's actually making reference to the mercy seat, let's assume he means the mercy seat. And if our theology needs to be scrambled and reconfigured, let's do that work. And at least that's my approach. Um, so God publicly displays Jesus as a mercy seat. That is, it's not a reference to the, it's not a reference to death. Um, it's a Jesus is that area above the Ark of the Covenant um, that represents cleansed temple space where God can dwell with humanity. And I have intentionally set up. I mean, I'm, I'm not reading into it. I'm I'm noting the language throughout Romans uh, one up to this point that has to do with temple, and there's a lot more language that has to do with temple um, beyond this point. Uh, I mean, just think of Romans 12, 1 and 2, about offering bodies as um, a sacrifice to God, which is our our, our proper temple behavior. Um, Paul uses temple language there as well. It's our appropriate worship. So this is not a reference here to Jesus' death. Um, it's not that God set Jesus forth publicly in his death. Uh, rather, because it's a reference to the space above the Ark of the Covenant that the priest sprinkles with his blood and that cleanses temple space, in my opinion, and I follow some early Christian interpreters actually in the first um, several centuries, um, other interpreters caught this. This is a reference to Jesus' high priestly work with his own blood. And sort of, so Jesus is not only the sacrifice, but the sacrifice is not in view here. Jesus sort of takes up the blood of his own sacrifice, and purifies that space so that now God can dwell with humanity. And that's what is happening in the church. Um, Jesus has provided purified temple space so that God's people can exist in the presence of God. And that reality is captured with the next expression. And it drives me bananas here, but um, a lot of translations have you know, whom God uh, publicly displayed as a propitiation, which um, not even sure why that word is used. Uh, through faith in his blood is how a lot of translations will go. And very honestly, that is possible. That's a possible translation. Uh, but another possible translation is through faithfulness with his blood. Same words can be translated in that way. And I think that's actually a better translation. Um, because Jesus is the mercy seat, um, the depiction here is Jesus taking up his blood, you know, purifying that space with it um, so that that space, <clears throat> sorry, this, the very space um, of Jesus himself, Jesus is sort of that cosmic space within which all God's people dwell and that's how they together inhabit the presence of God. That space is purified temple space. All of creation had, had become polluted temple space. That problem needed to be solved. How can God dwell with humanity? How can image bearers actually inhabit purified temple space if all of creation is polluted? How can God 
um, God's character as righteous be seen by image bearers? How can God's character as faithful be seen through um, humanity? How can God's character as true be seen on earth through humanity? Well, all that is provided for by that cosmic space called the faithfulness of Jesus. So this is really a reference to the public church, which is gathered in the name of Jesus. And, and the church is gathered as the visible presence of Jesus in the world. That's why when Paul says, whom God set forth as a mercy seat, uh, it's sort of depicting the unity of Jesus and his people. Sort of, um, you know, the church is basically the public uh, representation, the community form that Jesus takes on earth. Uh, so this is why I've said that that uh, the church is God's public justice, God's public righteousness. Um, yeah, the public people of God who are set right with God, who are transformed into true humans according to God's um, intentions for creation with humanity, uh, who are transformed into God's truth, who are transformed into God's faithfulness, they exist within the cosmic space of Jesus himself. They exist within the cosmic space of Jesus's faithfulness. Um, so Jesus being set forth is not a reference to Jesus on the cross. It's a reference to Jesus sort of in, in uh, the heavenly temple, as it were, um, existing there as the place where God and humanity can dwell together. And as the cosmic space um, that is purified for all the humans that exist there to be true image bearers. So wherever you know churches gather publicly, um, that is purified temple space. That is where we should you know look at communities like that and see that's God's righteousness, that's God's faithfulness, that's God's truth. Um, that's a community that is gathered to publicly represent God's commitment to creation, God's commitment to restoring humanity, um, God's commitment to creation's flourishing is depicted right there, those people gathered in the name of Jesus. Uh, and of course, God has done this for a demonstration of his righteousness, uh, of his justice. This goes back to that notion of God is righteous and that reality needing to be displayed within the world, as I've been saying, through image bearers. That's now happening. Um, God's character as righteous is now seen in this reality of set right people who exist within the cosmic space of Jesus himself. Uh, when Paul says, uh, because of the passing over of sins previously committed in the forbearance of God, or in a sense, it's kind of like in the inactivity of God, that's, to my mind, that's just a reference to the fact that God hadn't done this previously. God just didn't act before now acting in Jesus. And why has he acted now, you know, in Paul's time? It's a mystery. No idea. There's no answer to that. It just, it just hasn't happened until this moment. Uh, verse 26, but this is a display of his justice in the now time, in the present time. And again, I'm just going to be repeating everything that I've been saying. This, um, you know, the church is God's righteousness, is God's people gathered in Jesus as the public display of God's justice, God's righteousness, God's true image bearers within the cosmic temple that is creation. But so that now God can be just and the one who justifies. God can be righteous and the one who makes righteous, the one who is of the faithfulness of Jesus. That's a better translation. Um, not the one who has faith in Jesus, but the one who is of the faithfulness of Jesus. That is the one, you know, one individual here standing in for all the people who are within the faithfulness of Jesus. That's the situation that needed to be set right. Um, God is righteous, he's just, he's faithful, he's true. It's just that that was not seen within the world until Jesus, who was all those things on behalf of God, he was the true human, and now all those who are wrapped up into Jesus 
are inhabiting that true humanity. And um, can't talk about that without saying that government, it's a work in progress. At least that's the, um, the reality that uh, Christian communities ought to be pursuing. This is what we're supposed to be living into, um, talking together and discussing how does this look for our community? What, what does this mean for us? that we are transformed into God's justice and how might we actually do this as a community? Cause none of this can be done as individual Christians kind of living in the world. That whole notion of the church as gathering to kind of be equipped and then scattering to do stuff, I don't think is appropriate to the new Testament really uh, as a church that gathers to discuss how we can be and inhabit and embody and perform and display God's public justice, and then we together do it. Because none of us can do it alone. We gather as a body, and um, we we conduct ourselves as bodies, as a, as a corporate body. Um, anyway, I realize that in the present time in our individualized culture, that may take a lot of creativity and sort of altering our thought patterns. But I think a lot of us realize. Um, how helpless and hopeless and fruitless individual activity is on our own. Like, what do we do about the large scale problems in not only in the world, but in our city? Well, as communities, we can actually be God's justice. That's uh, how that can actually look. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss this and come up with some creative avenues uh, for doing some small but meaningful acts of God's justice so that we can sort of experience the wonder of what it feels like to breathe deeply that air of liberated cosmic space. It's better than the alternative. So to this point, that is to say in uh, verse 26, everybody in Rome has already been united in cosmic enslavement and everybody in Rome has now been united in being set right by being included within the faithfulness of Jesus. That's how it happens. And again, all of the alls, all of you were, all of you have, this has now happened to all of you. So on the basis of all that, and here's where Paul is really going, and this is what kind of drives me crazy about uh, certain strands of interpretation of Romans it's like 321 to 26 is just, we want to get into the hardcore theology there. Well, Paul goes on in verse 27 to basically, you know, explore the payoff of this. This is where he's going. Where then is boasting? And the boasting that he's talking about is not the boast of an individual before God or something like that, or an individual's pride of achievement and getting themselves saved or whatever. Um, what he's talking about here is sort of the chest thumping of the weak over against the strong. Uh, the weak kind of um, trumpeting their identity as Jewish, or they're trumpeting their identity as holier than the strong, trumpeting their identity, uh, setting forth their identity as uh, more godly. So who has, a, who has any claim to a superior status based on what Paul has said to this point? So this is a shot at the weak. Uh, the group there in the Roman house churches. Do they have any right to claim superiority? Are they any better? Not at all. Any claim to a superior status is ruled out by what Paul has just said. And when he, you know, he asks, how is it ruled out? Um, is it ruled out by a law of works? And what Paul is doing there uh, with that expression, law of works, um, is he's talking about a way of reading Torah that is up and running among the weak uh, in, in the Roman house churches. It's a way of reading Torah um, to sort of highlight the practices that mark people off as Jewish and to kind of point to those as what everybody should be doing. And since we're doing those, we're the, we're the group that has um, you know, a claim to superior godliness. Uh, if not an exclusive claim to being Christian, whereas all of you are still mired in uncleanness, uh, ungodliness, you're all Gentile sinners. That is an improper use of Torah. And 
basically reading Torah as a Torah of works ensures division. It ensures boasting. Um, Boasting is ruled out only by a Torah of faith. It's only ruled out by a law of faith, or probably better, law of faithfulness or Torah of faithfulness. That is reading Torah within community to get at the heart of God for community life. Because God had always wanted Torah to foster among his people a community dynamic of faithfulness and of flourishing, of looking out for the poor, the orphan, and the widow, of um, of overcoming divisions, and of overcoming injustices and, and, and groups oppressing other groups. That's what God's word was always for. It was never for sort of identifying who the better group was than, than other groups. So what Paul's getting at here is that the Roman Christians, especially the weak, are reading their Bibles wrongly. They're using their Bibles wrongly. Um, they're reading their Bibles basically to find uh, in the Bible a claim to godlier status or more righteous status or to make a claim that our group is better or holier than your group. So um, he's going to draw this out a whole lot more in Romans 7, uh, but it is possible to use scripture in a way that actually serves the purposes of sin. It is is possible to use the Bible uh, to do loads of damage to the church. I always cringe when I hear... um, people this, oh, this there's so many there's so many sort of bible expressions that are just snatched out of their context and and used inappropriately and one of those is this whole thing you know god's word will not return void you know we have to use king james language when we use these kind of holy expressions that nobody can really object to well apparently in rome it was yeah i mean god's word can kind of get out there and do a lot of bad work that it shouldn't do. We can, you know, depending on people's motives or depending on people's, um, and not only the motive, but depending on the use in public, the use in relation, we can use the Bible to beat the crap out of each other and to humiliate people and to marginalize people. This happens all the time. And Paul says, when you're doing that, uh, you're, you're, you're basically, um, you know, you're you're mired in a uh, a law of works or Bible of works um, in Romans seven and eight, the beginning of eight. Uh, he talks about it as a law, the law of sin and death. That is to say, the way that you're using your Bible, you have turned it into Torah of sin. That is Torah dominated by sin and Torah dominated by death. You're using Torah to do the work of sin and death in your community. And that's a disaster. So read it appropriately, though. Use Torah to get to know the God of Israel and his heart for people and his heart for community life and his passion for justice to be embodied among his people. Read Torah that way, and you will become a community of faithfulness. But read it to highlight certain deeds that mark off your group as better. You're going to end up with nothing but discouragement and division and boasting. Verse 28, boasting is ruled out um, because a person is rectified or set right or justified by Jesus's faithfulness and not by having a Jewish identity. So all in Rome are on exactly the same footing. No group has any claim to superiority. Verse 29 is a very interesting argument. So in verses 27 and 28, Paul basically um, reinforces the argument that he's just unfolded in 21 to 26. And in verse 29, Paul draws on an argument from the Old Testament, which is, I mean, really from the central declaration of Israel, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that is, that's an expression uh, of faith on the part of Israel that there, that God is the only God. He's the singular reality. There's nobody like him. And he alone is the most high God. Um, in an ancient worldview, Israel always recognized that the heavens were populated with gods, the populated with deities. Um, the nations, the Gentile nations thought that there were deities that actually didn't exist, but there were a lot of gods that did exist. 
Um, but they were all creations of the, the one true God. And whenever Israel kind of talked about the gods of the nations, God, God had a, a certain title used of him, and that is the most high God. That is the champion God, the most powerful God, um, the God who is exalted above the heavens. That is, he's in a class by himself, and he's the only universal God who is the only creator God uh, of all creation. And he's the great king of all the earth. All the nations are responsible to this God, and he is the rightful claimant to all of their worship. And so when Paul brings this up in verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? That is a question that um, is basically asking, is God, is God only a tribal deity? Like this was, this was the norm in the ancient world. Like each town had its own deity and each small country had its own, or you know, nation had its own deity. And wherever you lived, you know, you had a, uh, an identity shaped by the town. You had an attack. Your, your worship was already determined for you. You worship the local deity. And, um, you know, everybody recognized this deity is only sort of, you know, has power over in this region, but he's not a universal deity. And in that kind of a context, Israel's claim was our God is actually the God over all the earth. He's not a tribal deity. And so what Paul is asking here of the weak in Rome is, Basically, if you claim that um, you have any kind of a special claim on God, then you are making God into a tribal deity. Is God the God of the Jews only? And the answer is no, not at all. God is the great king over all the earth. He's the God of Jews and Gentiles. And it's really unfortunate in translations, this is kind of lost, but Paul quotes the Shema. Um, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He says, no, God is one who justifies on and on and on. Um, in many of our English translations, we get the God, the God who justifies, blah, 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 is one. Um, but those first couple words are right out of the Shema. God is one. Uh, so basically, the central confession of Israel's faith, the central declaration of Israel's faith, um, is an argument against the weak in Rome who claim to have a superior status based on some kind of adoption of Jewish identity. So they are betraying Israel's faith by claiming that they have some kind of special status before God. Really interesting argument. Um, and God justifies the circumcised and uncircumcised on the very same basis, verse 30. Uh, so Paul ends with this, what well, doesn't end, uh, his argument just keeps running on, but this chapter sort of closes with this question, does this, does this make Torah of no effect? Not at all. Uh, Torah taught all along that Israel had this mission to be a light to the nations and that God wanted all humanity for his possession, not just Israel. And so this kind of concludes in some sense um, this section, but really... There's verse 26, in some senses, can be marked off as a, as a section. And verse 27 brings up this new topic of boasting. And it's interesting in the interpretation of Romans, and many, uh, many commentators don't really make a big deal of the boasting here. But um, verses 27 to 31 uh, form kind of a bracket around chapter 4 with chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where boasting comes up again. And when Paul brings up Abraham in Romans 4, um, Paul talks about Abraham having a boast. And I think that what Paul's doing there in chapter 4 is he's basically asking the question, do the weak have a special claim on Abraham? Do they have a special relationship with Abraham that the strong don't have? Um, or is it the case that if Abraham were to show up in the Roman house churches, would he be among the weak? And would he be boasting with the weak over against the strong? And so um, in 327 to 31, Paul rules out partisan boasting. That is, boasting on the part of our group over against that group. And in 5, 1 through 11, Paul is going to give to all the Roman Christians 
a common boast that is um, a common identity to celebrate. That's what boasting is. Like we're going to celebrate our identity. And the boasting in 327 to 31 is destructive and divisive. It's the, it's the boast of one party over against the other party. And in 5, 1 through 11, Paul, now that he's united them all together in condemnation, all together in justification, all together in relation to Abraham, chapter 4, Paul moves in chapter 5 to tell them, you actually have a common identity to celebrate um, your, your relation together to God and your existence together in this new cosmic space where there is a variety of transformed dynamics that go on that provide common hope. So I'm saying all that to say that in 326, there's a sense in which a section ends. And in 327, running up to the end of 511, that's a section. So big picture, if 118 to 511 is the first big movement of Romans, which is how I see it, then 118 to 326 is sort of the first half of that, and 327 to 511 is the second half of that. Anyway, I hope that this is making some kind of sense. It's, uh, it's super helpful for me to review my notes and to work through the Greek text and to look at these things more closely and to keep Romans at the forefront of my mind um, because it's so thrilling and so fascinating and so interesting, but I also need to be doing some writing on it. Um, so once the busyness of the new semester sort of wears off a little bit, I am going to be taking some time blocking out times of my week where I'll be unavailable and um, cranking out these works on Romans that I am so privileged to be able to do. Well, tomorrow morning, uh, which will be Saturday morning, I'm heading out to SoCal. Looking forward to having a blast. Maybe grab some uh, In-N-Out burgers, which would be totally fun. So it's a kind of a whirlwind of a weekend, but I'm still looking forward to hanging out with Casey and the Vox crew and um, just enjoying uh, rich community life there. And when this drops on Tuesday morning, that will be in the past. So Casey, thanks for having me, man. I had a great time. I'm saying all that with great confidence. All right, I'm looking out on an absolutely beautiful sunny day. I'm going to go hang out with my kitties now. And I uh, hope that wherever you are listening to this, that it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.